It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is December the 21st in 2022, and my guest is Dan Epstein. Dan is a political economist and regulatory litigator. He's a director at Trust Ventures, a VC fund helping entrepreneurs overcome regulatory challenges, a fund with a similar thesis to my own at Infinita. Dan is uniquely positioned to understand the politics, law, and economics of regulation and how it affects entrepreneurs at the forefront of technology. If that's you, fasten your seatbelt. This is going to be an amazing episode. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Dan, besides what I said, anything else you'd like listeners to know about you? Or can you give us a bit of a sense or an overview of your extensive experience as a regulatory litigator and where you're coming from? So certainly appreciate this opportunity. And I love, Nicholas, what you do with the show and what you do with your kind of professional life. I think it is such an important topic, such an important issue. I think what makes me unique is I'd be the first to say I'm not the best lawyer out there. I'm certainly not the best kind of scholar out there. But what makes my perspective unique is very few people have been on all sides of the regulatory process. Um, before I went into the venture capital world, I represented the federal executive branch in defending regulatory policy, in defending the executive branch in litigation, and had the perspective of being the regulator. And very few people have been on all sides. I'm a litigator. I've been trained as a litigator. Most of my career has been spent suing the government on behalf of entrepreneurs and representing entrepreneurs when the government comes knocking. But yet at the same time, have been on the side of the government and been on the side of the government in, in two unique ways. One is federal regulators representing the office of the president, which is in, in the constitutional system of the United States, the president oversees the execution of the law. Before I started my own kind of impact litigation shop, I had worked in the United States Congress, so the legislative branch, where the law is allegedly made, but where Congress still has enormous amounts of oversight responsibilities over the private sector, as well as the executive branch. And the committee I worked for, the oversight committee, is both kind of a regulator and an overseer of the regulators. I investigated a lot of private sector entities to determine are the laws that are on the books sufficient, as well as investigate the regulators are, of, are you doing your job under federal law? And before that, a long time ago, 15 years ago, I worked in-house at a major corporation called Coke Industries, both kind of on the policy side and the legal side. And so all of that experience has given me, not only do I know where the bodies are buried, but I know, you know, and what I do on a day-to-day -day basis for companies at Trust Ventures is um, I play regulator a lot with them. 
and try to not just because I like scaring people, but because it's important that they understand what they have to look out for. I find that the, you know, we, when we talk about, and we can have such a kind of long and almost academic conversation of what do we mean by regulatory barriers? What do we mean when we talk about from a public choice uh, economics perspective of barriers to growth, barriers to market entry? And it's just, it's a conversation that can get sideways very easily, but think actually from the perspective of the entrepreneur, most entrepreneurs are not anti-regulation. They're not anti-law. What their problem is, is they want certainty um, or as much certainty as they can get. And if you really have an economic system that's gonna support entrepreneurs, what you actually want is you want regulatory pricing or legal pricing to be as clear as possible so that entrepreneurs can say, can take appropriate risks. Why would you want a system where the law is not clear and where you're essentially encouraging entrepreneurs to take risk on law versus risk on markets. It's actually totally backwards. And right now we're in the position of, I think, in, the, in my world, in your world, everyone's thinking about FTX and SBF, and it's the government needs to crack down on this even more. But actually, it's the government in saying like, well, the SEC says we're going to have very vague rules about when is a crypto product a security. And so are you surprised? that an entrepreneur is gonna take risk. And so that's largely what, with my experience, what I try to help companies do is let's better price risk because it's the uncertainty of regulatory pricing that I think leads to so many problems. You know, my view, and this is consistent with a lot of the different perspectives that have been on your show is my view is the kind of uh, Richard Epstein world, which is we should have simple rules for a complex world. And if the law is not clear and the law is not, you know, and clear means a lot of things, clear in terms of who does it apply to, who is subject to it, and what is required, what are the affirmative obligations which you must do. The law is not clear. We shouldn't say that the government gets a free pass and saying, we know it's not clear, so we're just going to investigate a bunch of businesses and use the investigative threat process, the regulatory threat process to establish what the law should be or what the law is. I just think that's incredibly bad for business. It's also incredibly bad for any kind of social welfare, public welfare argument. That's a long-winded way of answering your question. Yeah, there's so much we I'd love to dive into with you. You have all the practical experience that are in many of the areas that I'm talking about on this podcast with entrepreneurs. One impression that I have when I talk with entrepreneurs, or one general observation is that many that is much more of a need for a regulatory strategy than many entrepreneurs assume before they start a business. Right, so Airbnb or Uber are examples. I think it's not a very publicized story that a regulatory strategy is at the heart of what they had to do. Right, Uber is a great example. Bradley Tusk was one of the co-founders. He's a former politician. Right, figuring out how to basically get Uber working in different cities all over the world was what he did for Uber full time. Right. So I think many entrepreneurs don't realize that very often and are often having to go about this battle in kind of a haphazard way. At what point do you often interact with entrepreneurs? What's the state of their knowledge when it comes to or how aware are they that they need a regulatory strategy? Yeah, you're, this is, again, it's a dissertation length subject. Bradley Tusk has been the profile of a lot of books in the last few years about what is becoming a topic in legal academia, which is regulatory entrepreneurship. And what does that mean? Now, I think to answer your question most directly, so Trust Ventures, my fund is a very early stage fund. And the reason that's fun is because 
what makes us different than a private equity fund or a later stage venture fund is those kinds of growth stage funds are really investing in companies that likely already have very high valuations or you can do enough financial diligence to say, yeah, this is going to be a rocket ship company. It's going to be a big business. In reality, we don't know. We have hunches. We hope we're right that our portfolio company is going to be big businesses. But what kind of makes it fun is they're actually small businesses and they face the same kind of issues that a typical um, small business will face. And what that means is that because we're sometimes the first dollars in or the first venture dollars in, or maybe they've done kind of an angel investment round, the friends and family rounds, but certainly the kind of the first institutional capital in. And so that means it's it's kind of the same perspective that a small business owner is going to have, which is, as you pointed out, they're not really thinking about regulatory. And certainly what they don't want to hear is that you've got a lot of legal and regulatory issues. And so it's really, it's going to be a tax that you have to pay and it's compliance tax. And it means you're going to have to hire a bunch of expensive lawyers. And instead of getting into those three additional states, you're going to have to spend that money on legal fees for compliance, to get licensed, all these other sorts of things. And, you know, what I think is actually the best thing for businesses is to have kind of counsel and guidance and advisors who, if you're a business that, you know, clearly faces, whether it's some regulatory risk or a lot of regulatory risk, you want advisors who are going to be business minded. And who are never going to tell you something that is literally going to come at conflict or intention with what is your kind of fundamental business judgment of, I need to grow the company. I need to engage in smart growth. What we do at Trust Ventures is effectively regulatory adjusted scaling. Our view is we're, we come here and we want to help you scale. We want to help you grow. Now, we recognize that if you do the move fast and break things approach, you are going to find yourself in the crosshairs of a regulator. And there's a whole host of reasons for that. And so the idea is, how do you plan appropriately? I think the approach that we take at Trust Ventures that I think is probably different than other funds that are in the regulatory space is we, we do something that our friends at Mercatus have really coined, which is called permissionless innovation. And the idea is, is to what extent can you engage in a lot of permissionless innovation before you have to ask for permission? And that's where we tend to be very research intensive, very getting our hands dirty. We want to understand what the law is. And if the law is not clear, we want to say, look, law is not clear, which means that you've got to take some calculated risks. And so if you look at just some case studies on that, you look at you know our companies, we've got Swimply, which is the Airbnb for pools. We've got a company called Sana, which is trying to provide best-in-class healthcare insurance. So in any event, a lot of these companies are a lot of these companies are trying to get into jurisdictions and get into those jurisdictions and sell and market very quickly. And it means that they need to understand what's the law in each in each state. This is in the United States. That's where most of our funds work is. And often if the law is not clear, it's, well, how can we get clarity? And I think this goes into a bigger picture. We tend to tell, and I think you bring up a good point, which is like, look at Bradley, Tusk, and Uber. I think for the most part, and people are disagree about this. Like if you talk to a lot of VCs in the United States, they'll say, oh, the era of Airbnb and Uber is over. That there's just, you're not, can't play in this environment and move fast and break things. The regulators have smartened up. I think that just is not true. I think, and here's what I'll say. I think that what the great thing about Airbnb and Uber is when they first started, you, if, you would to, if you were to say, what industry is Airbnb? A lot of people would have said hotels or rental accommodations, and that would have been wrong. 
because Airbnb has created a new industry. If I asked you what industry was Uber in, you would have said the taxi business or they're the limo business. And that's wrong. They created a new industry. It's called the ride sharing economy or the ride sharing business. And this is key. This is key because I think this is what, this is both something that's an insight for entrepreneurs. And I think it's important for regulators to understand. When we talk about what is the regulator's jurisdiction, we mean nothing else other than what industry is a certain company a part of. And this is an important kind of point because regulators don't have authority or what lawyers call jurisdiction, except over an industry. The legislature has to say, here's what industry you have authority over. The, for instance, the Federal Trade Commission, you have jurisdiction over marketing practices that are unfair or deceptive. In order to establish that jurisdiction, the FTC has to issue clear rules. Here is our statement of authority over sharing of data on peer-to-peer -peer music file sharing networks. And you have to be very particular to that industry. If a regulator doesn't establish clearly that we are exercising certain authority over an industry, then it is up to you as an entrepreneur to say, then you don't have jurisdiction, right? Because we live in a rule of law system and you have to establish jurisdiction by law. This gets to a very big problem because what is the primary way in which a innovative company is subject to regulation? Most nine out of 10 lawyers, particularly in where I work, which is Washington DC, will say rules. We live in a system of rules, but that is, in fact, not only is that the, not the, it's not the primary way in which, in which regulation happens in this country for entrepreneurs. It's not the primary way in which regulation happens for any business. The primary way in which regulation occurs is through investigations and adjudication. That means that you have regulators who are typically civil servants. They're not appointed. They're not elected. They have lifetime positions for the most part, and they decide we're going to go after you in a zero political cost way. It's not going to be public. It's going to be a private investigation, and it's going to begin by we're going to be asking you questions. And the mistake that every company makes is they say, oh, the, the court reporting board of Florida or the construction board of California or the veterinary board of New York has just sent us a request for information. If we don't do this, we're, bad things are going to happen. Let's just give them the kitchen sink. And that is the death now for an entrepreneur, because what you have just done is conceded jurisdiction. And what you should be doing is thinking your first thought should be, what industry am I? And is that an industry for which this regulator doesn't have jurisdiction? Am I creating a new industry? And so this is the certain sense in which every entrepreneur faces regulatory risk. Because if you're truly disrupting, you're creating a new industry. And, and it's literally true. A lot of what, a lot of what my research when I wear kind of my academic hat focuses on is the idea that particularly in the United States, regulation is really a question of, or regulation is really a question of what industry are you? And in this country, literally there was very little federal regulation of business until the last, you know, 150 years. And the first big business that was subject to regulation in the United States was the railroad industry. And what was industry before that? It's hard to say what did industry really look like? And the, the story of regulation in the United States is very much a story of the railroad industry where what happened in, and you've had Tom Bell on and he talks about common law. And it used to be that when you were one of the first kind of big rail companies in 19th century America, here's the real, very real problem you faced. Okay, we're gonna run a rail line and it's gonna be from Baltimore 
and then it's going to go to Philadelphia, and then it's going to go to Memphis, Tennessee. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to charge different rates on that rail line. And the reason we're going to charge different rates is because if we can set rates at a certain price, we're going to be more competitive than other rail lines. And if we can change rates in different jurisdictions, we can potentially make more money based off population and all these other sorts of things. And what started happening to the railroad industry is they started getting a lot of complaints filed by state and local regulators, and they started getting sued and they got sued under the common law. And the investors in railroads like the JP Morgans and the uh, robber barons decided very quickly to say, look, it is not good for our business if we have to deal with this patchwork of regulation happening from the state level or the local level or litigation. And it's what political economist Eleanor Ostrom called uh, a collective action problem. And so how did the these fledging, almost global, certainly interstate businesses, how did they decide to solve this collective action problem of a patchwork of regulation? They said, we're going to create a centralized regulator. And they created the Interstate Commerce Commission. And so when we say that's the story of regulation in this country, but it's also the story of industry because the railroad industry didn't exist until they created a centralized regulator that recognized their industry. And so it's so important when you examine the history of regulation in this country to also understand that it was one and the same. It was synonymous with the history of industry. Industry simply refers to a regulated sector. We have this funny word, this funny phrase where people talk regulated industries, but that's a tautology. That's a, it's a redundancy. All industries are regulated. So your goal as the entrepreneur is to think, how do I view myself as a new industry or a business that is not within a current industry so that I can say I get to engage in a certain amount of permissionless innovation. And so that's a long-winded way of saying that's what we try to do at Trust every day. The key to entrepreneurship, the key to a free society is permissionless innovation. If you have to ask for permission before you innovate, you're basically telling someone to be less risky in the way that they think about improving people's lives. You don't make money as an entrepreneur unless you're improving people's lives. And so much of regulation nowadays is saying, well, you got to pay a cost because we worry about your harm to the public or your harm to society. But if you're a successful entrepreneur, you make money by helping improve people's lives. You're doing the best thing for their lives. You're improving their safety, you're improving their effectiveness. It's, as an entrepreneur, you're in that situation where you're guilty until proven innocent. The exact reverse of the legal principle, innocent until proven guilty. So it doesn't make sense to say, oh, I'm providing like railroad services on part of the railroad industry. You're trying to solve a problem. How do I get someone from A to B? Right. What industry you're in is not really the question you're asking yourself, right? You're asking yourself, how do I create value for customers? And because there's often changes in technology and in production processes, these definitions can shift, right? So the most interesting and most innovative businesses are often created during those shifts or during creative destruction, right? Where they're not like defined as an industry. As you mentioned, Uber is not like taxi, it's ride sharing. Right. It's the sharing economy, the gig economy and things like that, which puts entrepreneurs, almost any entrepreneur by default into a position where they're challenging what the industry, how the industry is delivering its product to customers. Right. Yeah. I think a question that comes up and this is true of any startup that wants to enter a new market 
is a lot of companies will say, will get told a lot, okay, I'm doing something that is potentially, I don't like using this term, but some will say, well, it's not clear that that's legal. It's not clear that what you're doing is legal. And their first thought is, okay, well, do I need to hire an expensive lawyer to hire an expensive lobbyist? And this is what becomes very tricky because if you're a lobbyist or a lawyer who advises companies on regulation and you're someone who's motivated by incentives, then you're probably not going to be focusing on startups. You're probably going to be focusing on big incumbents who really aren't very entrepreneurial. They're not engaging in permissionless innovation. They want to know, okay, what is the tax I have to pay? What's the toll I have to pay? And then I want to get going. And so you're going to be giving advice that very much isn't looking to disrupt industry or disrupt kind of regulation, but to really kind of affirm it. And that is not ideal for an early stage business of any sector. They need to know what is the minimal requirement and nothing more. I don't want the, con- the most conservative advice. I want the advice that tells me what the law is. And you hear these stories of this very innovative company was doing something interesting with drones or is doing something interesting with nutritional supplements. And we hired lobbyists and we changed laws in multiple states. And that's great. But I would argue that is the wrong perspective for a company that doesn't have enough cash or enough of a scale to really be focusing on that. And in fact, I would argue that actually when you look at the evidence, you look at the history of Airbnb, you look at the history of Uber and Lyft, you look at businesses like Boom Supersonic, they're really not building internal government affairs or lobbying teams or really spending a lot on the outside lobbyists until kind of year four of existence slash the Series B. And so I think that's an important kind of political economic point, which is if you're don't have $50 million in the bank, and that's a typical Series B cash number, spending cash on lobbyists and lawyers instead of business development and sales and marketing is probably not a smart business decision. This statement is very controversial. Uh, Certainly, regulators would say, is he advocating that you just don't engage in compliance? But I think I take the perspective that I look at the Constitution, and I think about the founders of the United States. All of the founders were property owners. All of the founders were in some way either involved in farming or an adjunct to it. Farming was the startup of the 17th and 18th century in the United States. That was the primary industry. And the founders were this unique group of people who thought that the ability to own private property and build private wealth was very important. Um, Property rights were very important. And so I like to think that the law of the land, the most important law of the land, the highest law of the land, the United States Constitution, at least here in the United States, should always support the entrepreneur. Uh, that almost, you know, you hear the expression, you know, well, the customer is always right. Well, I think the entrepreneur is always right, particularly when they're first starting out. And so if there's a view that, well, this law is going to shut you down or this regula- regulation is going to shut you down, I think that's the wrong view. And certainly you don't want to do anything that's clearly illegal, but what is clearly illegal is not always very clear. Exactly. Something that I also observe is, or what it seems to me is that this is a very, not very well understood problem. And the main reason for this is that the consequences of overregulation are not seen. I think one of your portfolio companies is Oklo, which is a nuclear power company. I had them on my podcast and, you know, the industry just got outregulated very much in the seventies. 
And then there's, you know, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission hasn't approved a single nuclear power plant since 1975. And mm -hmm. then you're basically in this uphill battle, right? The industry is close to you and either you go do something else or you, well, have to fight this uphill battle, right? But as an entrepreneur, and that's one observation that I had in my podcast, you can't, or you're often afraid probably to, um, so you're often in a situation where you have to explain to regulators who typically don't understand technology and have a very different mentality from you, but have the power of the law to make or break your business, right? So you can be in the spot, which is like very exhausting for you, but at the same time, you can't speak about it much in public because you don't want to offend them or have them turn against you. Is that something that you also observe with some of the companies you work for? Yeah. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, take Oklo, for instance, and when you say Oklo, you can add TerraPower and other kind of nuclear, what is basically a new industry. It's the small modular nuclear reactor industry, fission-based energy production, though fusion is now clearly on the horizon. And I think the problem is that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission exists not to allow, to give permission to very low risk nuclear power startups. The organic statute behind the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is something known as the Atomic Energy Act, and a statute that was passed in the World War II era because we were worried that nuclear power could be misused as a threat to domestic security. That is why nuclear energy, right? You look at electricity in this country. Electricity is not primarily regulated at the federal level. It's regulated by states. That's what we hear. Public utility commissions are state-like things. And so why is all of a sudden electricity created by nuclear power subject to federal regulation? And the answer is because most nuclear plants that were built in the 50s, 60s, and 70s presented national security risks. If you were able to, if China or Russia were able to entrench themselves in our large nuclear power plants, you could convert any one of those nuclear power plants into a nuclear weapon. But that fear is totally unfounded when it comes to a small modular nuclear reactor that is the size of a VW bug. And so this is, becomes the big problem is technology like Oklo's, like others, becomes trapped in political stasis. Oklo is not going to find a lawyer in the country who is going to say you don't have to go through the NRC licensing process. Why would they do that? They represent Siemens. They represent Westinghouse. Well, what is Oklo going to do? They're going to go to a, a local zoning law, lawyer in Western Missouri? No, they have to go to the Washington lawyers. And the Washington lawyers are going to say, of course, you're subject to jurisdiction. Money, money, money. And this is a big problem. Your point, like civil society institutions need to form and there needs to be regulatory reform that says, if you're a small modular reactor, why isn't there a right to try law, a right to create energy without getting a license? Because there is literally no risk. No one really is saying that the Atomic Energy Act contemplated in Oklahoma. No one in their right mind would say that. Yet that is exactly what we're doing. It doesn't make sense to say that Oklo can be, you know, turned into a nuclear weapon. It makes zero sense. And yet that's the kind of regulatory world they're subject to. Look, I'm a lawyer. I'm somebody who's been on the side of regulators, right? No one is going to risk losing their license by saying, yeah, Oklo, you really should just disrupt this whole kind of regulatory process and claim that you're not subject to licensure and just build your reactor and start selling electricity, right? Because it's not just that the regulator will come after them. It's literally that other businesses are not going to do business with them because their their lawyers are going to say, no, it doesn't have a combined license. So really, you know, you shouldn't do business with them. And that's a big problem. That's a very big problem. And I think it's one where 
the states should really be thinking about, look, if you're living in rural Alaska, you're spending an enormous amount of your paycheck on diesel, which is very dirty energy and very expensive energy, but it has to be trucked into your community. Think about if a Oklahoma nuclear reactor was built in rural Alaska, it would provide electricity for a community of 30,000 for several years. And so why shouldn't the states that are supposed to be the laboratories of democracy in a place like the United States, why aren't the states getting the power to decide? We don't think the NRC uh, really should have jurisdiction over this. And so I think there needs to be a lot of reform. Lots of people are talking about regulatory sandboxes. I talk about small business enforcement fairness, but things like there really needs to be a movement for this. And what I worry is, and I'll tell you, Nicholas, what the solution is. Because companies like Oklahoma, I think this is largely true of things in the energy industry is whether you're TerraPower, whether you're Oklo, whether you're other kinds of companies in this space, is you say, look, we're never going to be able to get legal counsel that says, we think we can make an argument that you're not subject to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's jurisdiction. You need a combined license or you need a, a commercial license and a site use permit and all these other sorts of things. And so what they say is, is well, that becomes very expensive. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to say, we need a lot of federal money. We just need a ton of federal money. So look at Tesla, right? Elon Musk is very out there in his criticisms of the government and censorship and all of this, but Tesla relied on a lot of non-dilutive capital from the American taxpayer. And so this becomes a really big question, particularly for those who are classical liberals, which is to say, you have these innovative companies. They seem to make a business judgment that they have to concede regulatory jurisdiction, and that becomes an expensive proposition. And so they reduce their risk by taking on a lot of non-dilutive government capital. And that helps investors say, this is worth buying. And I think that's just the reality. I'm not taking a normative position on that. I'm saying it's actually quite rational for a company that decides like, I'm gonna be treated, I'm a small modular nuclear reactor company, but the NRC is gonna treat me just like they treat Westinghouse, just like they, they treat General Electric. And so if that's the case, I need a lot of non-dilutive capital. And so I'm going to apply for a lot of federal grants, for loan guarantees, for cost-sharing cooperative agreements. And from the perspective of those who believe in a limited government, not a kind of aggressive athletic government, the idea that you're using taxpayer money to show, you know, to build your flywheel, that kind of doesn't jive well a lot with a lot of folks. But I think it's just the reality. And I think if there are those who say, I don't like that so many subsidies are going to, to these science experiments. Well, the response is, is, is that really what you're objecting to? Or is it a problem that we're trying to regulate things that don't really square with the law in the books? Yeah. I'm wondering, one of the interesting battles in technology when it comes to regulation right now is digital assets and like cryptocurrencies, right? I see pretty much on a daily basis that the arguments are traded between different factions, like on the sort of very deep cypherpunk crypto side, don't even engage with the regulators to the more moderate positions. Hey, let's figure out the right kind of crypto regulation to the mainstream. Hey, this is a scam and we need to just regulate everything to make it safe. How are you observing the debate about crypto regulation right now? Yeah. So I think, look, it's, it's a tough question. And I think the starting point, I am a Hayekian. And so I, I start from the position of really tough policy questions should not be answered by centralized regulators, because that means that you're going to try to plan to solve a problem that fundamentally is unpredictable. So when you deal with something where there's a lot of uncertainty, 
the best thing to do, the best posture for the government is to not take a hostile position, but for the government to say, we need to learn. And what's beautiful about the United States public law system, and I know that a big kind of debate within legal communities is common law versus civil law, but I hate to tell it to any law professor, um, but the United States is, for all practical purposes, a civil law system today. The United States looks a lot more like France than it does what the United States looked like in the 17th or 18th century. And by the way, all common law now is codified. So the United States is very much a civil law system. Um, you know, wh whether we like to think that in theory, it certainly, whether we like to disagree in theory, certainly as a matter of practice, we're a civil law system. And one of the things we have in our civil law, what we call the public law in the United States, is the government has the power to collect information from the private sector. Um, you know, every time you file your tax form, it is on a form that is approved by the United States federal government. And it's approved by a little regulatory agency called the Office of Management and Budget. And the Office of Management and Budget sets rules governing how the federal government collects information from individuals and businesses. But the great thing about that process is the government and regulators, particularly the SEC and the CFTC on the crypto space, they can use that process to gather a lot of information. And by gathering that information and doing it and saying, we're not investigating you, we're not bringing enforcement, but essentially saying, we're going to, we need to learn a lot and have that conversation before we actually start exercising enforcement. You can do it in a lot more intelligent of a way. Um, in fact, we have a very good proof of concept for how we should proceed on crypto. And it's the history of railroad regulation, something that I love talking about, as you can tell. But if you look at the 19th century, ask the question, who regulated the railroads in 1820 and 1850 and 1870? And the answer was Congress. And what Congress did is it said, we're not going to pass laws. We're going to let the states try to address this question. And we're just going to try to learn as much as possible. And so you had a committee called the Committee on Manufacturers and then eventually became the Committee on Railroads. And they conducted a lot of investigations. And the great thing about congressional investigations is you can't go to, Congress is not a law enforcement agency. It is, a, it is trying to write rules of the road. And so it took literally 50 years before Congress even could craft a rule about the railroad industry. And I think like it's important, it's not to say that we're gonna allow for potential systemic risks with crypto, but we certainly need to be in a learning posture, not an enforcement posture. And what's the best evidence that the SEC is getting it wrong? Look at all of the tokens that exist right now in the market that are actually being traded in the United States as we speak, in the West as we speak. And the overwhelming majority of them, like 99% of them are not registered as securities. So the idea that aggressive enforcement is a deterrent or is a market signal, is just empirically disproven. What we need to do is we need to take have the SEC under Gensler and the CFTC say, we need to learn more. Please come in, give us presentations. This is a great thing. If a company is being told, listen, we're not in an enforcement posture. Any information that you present to us cannot be used against you. We will sign a contract that says that. But please, we want to be educated as to your crypto product. Okay, you're issuing a token. You want to pay individuals to essentially verify uh, certain transactions that are being used on the token and on the blockchain. Great. Can you walk us through how you do that? Feel free to anonymize the names of those who are crypto mining, right? That's how the government should be taking the approach to this. Because if you don't, if you take an aggressive approach and you signal you're going to be enforcing, then you're going to get people like SBF, uh, who is not, who, what is Hayek said, what is the worst way to regulate an economy? It's through the political means. 
What did SBF do? He decided, I'm going to do all sorts of things because I see a lot of regulatory uncertainty. Okay, the SEC does not want to listen to me. They want, don't want to hear from me in a coalition of others about how they should regulate. They just want to say, we're going to enforce. Okay, so what do I do? I pay off politicians, lots of money, because I have regulatory uncertainty. And so I think maybe if the politicians are on my side, I'm not going to be subject to the Russian roulette of enforcement. That is a terrible way to have a system of law in this country. That's how they work in Russia and communist countries, not the United States. So you want to know who's to blame on this? Yes, certainly SBF, to the extent that he violated clear laws, should be held accountable. But the SEC should also be held accountable. Because guess what? You created a system of law via threat, not a system of law via trying to understand and build responsible rules for the road. You know, my view is this is a perfect opportunity. Uh, we had an election. Uh, we have a new U.S. House of Re Representatives leadership coming in in 2023. They should study the problem. It, you know, government has a lot of resources. It can study things. Let's let's study the problem before we decide to plan something that we don't fully understand. Yeah. Let's speak a bit about institutional learning. To what degree, if at all, do these institutions, the regulators, learn and improve? And it's my impression that it's rarely, if ever, happening. And I might be a bit cynical and feel free to give a couple of counterexamples. But it seems to me you have, I think, six different financial regulators. And when one is not doing their job effectively, right, there is no mechanism to for that organization to fail, right? Whereas if you're in private markets through creative destruction, you have businesses that fail if there's changes in technology or if they're not providing a good enough of value as a service as other businesses, right? And regulators and regulations and laws. We know with our background in the economics of law and public choice theory is also a product, right? They can do a better or worse job at getting the right trade-off between innovation and safety and things like that. But it also seemed to me during COVID, you know, it was something a lot of spotlight was in the FDA and the CDC. And it seemed to me they're not learning, right? Yes, you had Operation Warp Speed, but directly after you had the ability to do targeted booster shots for Omicron and the FDA only allowed it after Omicron was already over, right? So it doesn't seem to me that there's enough institutional learning, right? It, it, would you say that there is a, that there is that possibility? What are you seeing when it comes to these institutions learning or adapting? Yeah, I think you're right. I think, and the question is from a public choice perspective, what are the incentives? So I look at, I look at the FDA or I look at the SEC and if you're, if you're a motivated bureaucrat, and I understand that some people don't, won't, don't like the word bureaucrat, but I'm going to use it. If you're a motivated bureaucrat, your motivation is to actually get a big scalp, right? So think about this. If I am the FDA lawyer who shut down Juul, or I'm the SEC lawyer who went after CoinList, then I can take that and go to the private sector and say, hey, you need to pay me a lot of money because I'm the one who went after this company and I, I understand kind of you know how to protect things. The only learning that takes place is through aggressive regulatory activity to then capture the private sector. We talk about regulatory capture as if the private sector is the one that controls the regulators, but it's actually the reverse. The regulators look at the private sector and they say, that's where we get our incentives. We get a scalp and then we go and we sell our expertise for a price. And that's a really kind of unideal system. Can you it, confirm from yeah. experience that yeah. regulators are very well aware of that? 
right? Is that really that they're eyeing already their job after their position in the regulatory agency in the private sector? Is that very common in DC? Oh yeah, absolutely. I helped staff political appointees in the executive branch during the Trump administration. And there's no question, you get a lot of talented people who want to be chief counsel of the FDA, who want to be chief counsel of the SEC or chief enforcement counsel. And right, not a single one of them uh, decides, you know what, after the administration ends, I want to stay at the SEC and I really want to work on reform and improving regulatory process. Nope. They all go into the private sector and they make a ton of money off their experience. That's not ideal. Yeah, yeah. And for any listener who is not aware of the regulatory capture argument, it's basically, you know, what is the incentive if you're a regulator or a public agency or a bureaucrat, these regulations benefit you, right? Because you get a bigger budget for like enforcement and things like that. And also you become the expert on sort of, you know, cryptocurrency regulation or whatever. That means your net worth to private companies after your appointment in that regulatory agency is very high, right? So you want a lot of regulation and you want a lot of complex regulation. So you become the expert on that and can monetize that expertise afterwards in the private sector, right? That's right. Yeah. And it's what, you know, Michael Pogliani talked about kind of personal knowledge. And if you actually think about what's an ideal system of governance, you want the people making the law to have the expertise, right? They should have the policy expertise, but that's not how it works in the United States. The lawmakers actually rely on the regulators to write laws. And there was a, a piece in the Yale Law Journal, maybe it was about 10 years ago now, that actually showed that most, the most influential lobbyist on Congress is not the tobacco industry or the oil and gas industry. It's the federal regulatory state that are most effective and influential lobbyists on Congress because they effectively tell Congress how to write the laws. And that is a problem. That's a problem. They're not elected. They're not voted on. Yet typical regulator, a civil servant, is going to outlast many members of Congress. And they're going to have every incentive to uh, build their expertise. And if they don't decide to go and sell out to the private sector, they recognize that they're going to be a trusted source for regulatory intelligence on behalf of legislatures. Mm -hmm. And you could say that's very efficient, but it certainly means that you don't have a system where those who are writing the rules of the road are politically accountable. They're certainly not politically accountable. Yeah. And it wasn't always like that in the United States. So there is a history of the regulatory state that has grown massively inside the American constitution explicitly forbade many of these agencies, if you take it literally or how it was intended. So how did the modern regulatory state come about? Yeah, there's a great book that has come out recently by a professor of law at the University of Michigan, William Novak. And I think he's right. The, his argument is that the federal regulatory state was primarily not motivated for economic reasons that basically what happened in this country is in the United States, we have a terrible history of slavery and essentially using persons as, as chattel, as property. The civil war in this country was largely about the slavery question. And after the civil war, it meant, look, we have a lot of, a lot of racist and discriminatory laws. And we have to, the only way in which you're going to get kind of fairness and equal protection in this country is it's up to Congress 
to make sure that you don't have discriminatory laws at the state level. And the United States Congress and its intelligence passed the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which effectively created national citizenship. And with that, certain rights and privileges with being a citizen of the United States, you couldn't be subject to any form of discrimination by any kind of state or locality, or even the instruments of those states or localities, or even entities that are involved in interstate commerce. And so I think once you establish that civil rights is a federal question and not a local question, it means that all of a sudden there becomes a kind of intellectual skepticism of the ability of states to do things right. I'm not making a normative argument here. I think Professor Novak is right that once it becomes just reality in the United States, that civil rights is a federal question, that you can't leave these questions to the states because you'll get enormous amounts of discrimination. It opens the door to kind of all of a sudden now, it's the federal government that needs to be solving all problems. And that's where it starts. And eventually, I think it's a push for civil rights that says you can't have businesses discriminating. And so we need kind of federal regulation of business. And I think the 14th Amendment really opens the door to that. It's not, it didn't have to happen this way, but I think it's the unfortunate reality of slavery in this country. And I think it's important to say, look, like we, racism is bad. Um, any form of invidious discrimination is bad. We need to really solve these things. It's going to be expensive to solve these things. But we also have to understand that if you have the federal government where, you know, not only are so many economic questions, federal questions, but simply not just questions for Congress to solve, but questions for agencies that are in very big, ugly buildings in Washington and where they have to solve those questions. At a certain point, don't be surprised in the United States when, you know, most businesses in, in, are essentially large kind of bureaucratic monopolies and where you don't have a lot of entrepreneurship left. And I think that's certainly the fear of what's happening in the United States. And look, in a certain sense, if you want to look empirically at what are the kind of freest markets, and if the definition for markets is, is kind of competition, market competition, look at places like Singapore, look at places like Finland, some of the Nordic countries, look at Switzerland. There's arguably a lot of economic competition there. There's lots of entrepreneurship there and kind of almost ironically, not a lot of billionaires. Uh, Russia has a lot of billionaires. China has a lot of billionaires. Not a very economically competitive market there. You know, yes, we celebrate billionaires in this country. But if you're someone who's an entrepreneur and you're building a business and there's a lot of competition, it's really hard to become a billionaire. It's really hard to become a multimillionaire and you have to be at it and competitive. And I think the worry is that the federal regulatory state makes it really easy to be a monopoly. And that's just, that's not good for economic competition. And it's ultimately not good for liberty. Yeah, it's also one of these counterintuitive insights that someone who's not too familiar with the economic arguments um, probably has reverse, right? So many people are thinking, hey, if you have free markets and competition, um, you know, unbridled capitalism or whatever, at some point you have monopolies, right? Because the strongest one takes over all the others. And it's actually the other way around. If you have more regulatory action, more state intervention, that's actually a much easier way to get monopoly. Whereas under competitive conditions, it's much harder to hold that position of being a monopoly because that makes it so attractive for other entrants to try to steal the butter from your bread and compete with you. Right. Uh, you made the point. You quoted kind of Joseph Schumpeter on 
creative destruction. Um, and right, we don't have we don't have the horse and buggy industry in this country anymore, and that's because of creative destruction. Can you imagine if we still had a, a horse-drawn carriage regulator in the United States? Guess what would have happened if we still had a horse-drawn uh, carriage regulator? We'd be still riding on horses. So you're absolutely right. Regulation helps provide the competitive advantage for yeah, yeah. yeah. I wonder to what degree the technology industry has already internalized some of these lessons, right? So when you listen to Mark Andreessen, for example, who experienced or shaped the development of the early internet, he was basically from day one fighting with regulators. And the way he tells the story is that it was far from clear that they would let them do what they wanted. So his strategy that he developed is you had to just be faster and had to be ahead of the regulators, basically have to create enough momentum and kind of define yourself before kind of the enemy can define you. And I wonder if something is like that is playing out now with crypto and Web3. So A16Z and Mark Andreessen are basically saying, hey, here's this new category, this new industry. So you can't come like with the old regulation, even though some of these businesses are stealing or are doing what other regulated businesses are doing, like money or web services or basically business domiciles or organizations, right? The DAOs are like alternative to Delaware entities in some ways. So you have any take on that or do you have any thesis on how the tech industry is or what the strategies are in the tech industry to overcome yeah. these regulatory challenges? Yeah, so I think that's, I think Andreessen's correct, which is you're only going to survive if you move faster than the speed of regulation. The problem is, let's say you're a investor in a technology company, like just take Stripe, for example. Let's say you're an investor in Stripe and you're going to make billions off Stripe as it keeps growing. At a certain point, Stripe is going to say, look, we moved fast and grew bigger than any of our competitors. Now we want the rules to be in place to benefit us. Go look at, you want a perfect example of this? Go look at you know Mark Zuckerberg's ads in the last few years on Facebook. We want more regulation. And I think the problem becomes, it's one thing to say, you got to move faster than the regulators. What is the unfortunate reality is at a certain point, once you become the number one, you start saying, yeah, let's have rules. And those rules become anti-competitive. And I think that becomes the concern. That becomes the concern. And a company is only going to do that when there's economic incentives to do that. Uh, the incentives should never be, the economic incentive, incentive should never be created by the government. I think that's a recipe for a lack of innovation. And ultimately, you know, I think the problem with the intersection of regulation and industry in this country is that if you decide to become a regulated industry, it's like a guild in 15th century Europe. You're not going to be put out of existence. Right. And just look at BlackBerry. BlackBerry is still a company and it's, it pays its regulators. It pays its trade associations. And that means that it has a ticket to survival. That's really bad because markets function efficiently when there's creative destruction. We should be witnessing lots of creative destruction. And if you're not, and it's because of regulatory and political stasis, that's not a good thing. I like this ticket to survival idea. So one example that always comes to my mind is notaries especially in Germany, like by law is often mandated, you need to have a notary to sign off this and that contract, right? That's a perfect, that's a perfect example. Because guess what we do in the United States? 
is we have all sorts of laws that say you can't have remote notaries, right? So let's say I'm a licensed notary in Texas and you're located in Florida. There's a law that says, well, no, you can't have a document notarized under Florida law unless it's a Florida licensed notary. A perfect example of this is telemedicine, right? It is literally the law in the United States that if I am traveling to Florida, I can go, even though I'm not a Florida resident, I can go and get treated by a Florida doctor in person. Nothing wrong with that. But if I am, if I go back to New York, where I'm from, or I go back to Washington, D.C., and I call that doctor and I say, hey, can I get treatment? No, sorry, I can't treat you because you're located in New York City and I'm not licensed there. It's absolutely ridiculous. But what, it, what is the, what is the regulated, regulated system designed to do? It's designed to preserve anti-innovative industries. Exactly. Like, I wonder sometimes what are the alternatives, right? Because the vector in, so the United States has the advantage of network effects, right? So it is the largest capital market in the world, and it has some regulatory options that are actually easier than in other countries, right? So forming a Delaware company, for example, is just much easier than it is to do the same thing in Europe or in other parts of the world, right? So there doesn't seem to be yet big competitive pressure for United States institutions to change. My hope is that alternative jurisdictions, such as the one that I'm in, Prospera, can partly overcome that and at least develop or innovate when it comes to new regulations, right? So yeah. showing the world, hey, there's great innovation that's possible if you create sort of a market for law mm -hmm. and, hey, the rest of the world can learn from that. Or some governments like Rwanda, for example, we heard in a different podcast episode was allowing Zipline, a drone logistics company yep. to operate there, basically have a green field, have a right to experiment, to try a proof of concept. And then they had more data points and just more to show with other regulators and other jurisdictions what it can do. So it seems to me that many companies, including the ones that might show up in your portfolio, are increasingly going multi-jurisdictional, yep. right? Yep. And negotiate with different regulators at the same time and are trying to look for sort of innovative jurisdictions where they can trial and test and collect data so they can then go to some of these regulators and tell them, hey, here's what we can do. Do you want this? Yeah, I think that is absolutely right. And I think that is a, a market-based solution because I think you're saying two big points. One is, is we have companies that are forming in Latin America, companies that are forming in the United States, companies that are forming in Asia and Israel, and Europe as well. And what is very interesting is venture capital in this world is still highly regionalized. You have SoftBank is Japan, and you have lots of VCs like Andreessen Horowitz. Most of its investments are going to be US-based investments. And I think what we don't see is a lot of co-investment that's global. And the advantage of kind of global co-investment is that what it allows for is it allows for you to say, wait a second, there's a big societal need in certain, maybe it's a country like Ghana where there's a big societal need for cheap electricity. And Oklo, you could build your reactor there. But Oklo is not going to be primed to do something like that if it doesn't have capital investors who are saying, we want to encourage that. And so I think that's got to be a big solution. We've got to be thinking about investment at a global level. 
there's things that can be experimented in outside of the United States that can show proof of concept. Look, what's better than a regulator doing a, an examination to prove safety? Well, we've had Oklo running for two years now and it's been perfectly safe. So I think that is a key, a key insight. And I think that's absolutely right. I think the other part of this is, and this gets back to another thing that you talk about a lot, is we just have to be honest. The United States, there, there's common law is dead in the United States. Judge made law is dead. Every judge, you know, whether at the state level or the federal level, they look at statute books and they look at codes when adjudicating cases. And what that means is it creates a bias towards regulation and public regulation. And if you look at, if you look at things like you look at broker dealers, you look at construction in this country, the primary, and you look at insurance, we say that all of those are kind of deregulated industries. Most insurance rules are written by a trade association, the National Association of, Indep of Insurance Commissioners. Most broker dealer rules are issued by FINRA, right? And so if you're a broker dealer, you have to get something called a FINRA license. FINRA is a nonprofit corporation. And then in the building space, most of those model codes are written by the International Code Council. And so I think this is a great kind of opportunity to say self-regulated organizations are doing a great job of creating compliance structures for innovative businesses without having to have a centralized regulator. And I think that shows a lot of promise. I think we should be more open to building those self-regulated organizations and not waiting for the government to say, you have permission to do that, but having the industry say, this is really important. And, and we're going to be thinking not in the kind of short run, but thinking in the long run in terms of what's great for the, for this country, what's great for a free society. Yeah. That's honestly something that surprised me a lot because I do my first VC fund now and I was working in startups before and we were globalized from day one, right? I had customers all over Europe. I had customers in Latin America and the United States in Asia. I was traveling all over the world. And as soon as I entered VC, it was like every VC that um, sort of I was in this global program called VC Lab was had this very re regional focus. And I heard from founders all the time, oh, um, you know, the their VCs they talk to, they're all focused on San Francisco and they consider themselves, oh, they're looking beyond means for them, they're going to LA. So I wonder why VC is not such a globalized industry yet, right? Because we can also hopefully play a positive role in helping some of these founders develop the right kind of networks, the right kind of expertise and figuring out some of these solutions, right? So by allowing them to play the multi-jurisdictional game, right? So which jurisdiction could allow you to do some of the things that you need to be doing? What's your legal stack that you need to do this? What's your, and when are then the guardrails to get approval in bigger markets, such as the United States or Mexico, if you're from Latin America or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. The incentives certainly should be there. I think it's a knowledge problem, right? Certainly there are places where you can test products that have low regulatory risk with high upside. And it's just a question of getting the right knowledge to know where to do that. And you think that, that venture capitalists who have kind of an interest in capital and getting returns on that capital are going to figure that out, but it really is a knowledge problem. It's very expensive knowledge to obtain. And I actually think that the other side of this is the civil society. We need to have nonprofits. We need to have think tanks that help bring knowledge together. Get policy organizations that are getting people from Latin America, from Sub-Saharan Africa, from uh, Southern India that can come together and talk ideas and about here are things that should be tried. And here's an introduction to kind of policy networks to, to get those things to, to get tried and experimented with. And so I think that's a great kind of opportunity for the civil society sector to really be thinking about these things.
Yeah, that's great. I love that insight that we got to that point of unleashing this opportunity of using different jurisdictions around the world to decentralize innovation, basically. I think that's really the next wave or the next phase of venture capital, like globalizing what has been created essentially in Silicon Valley and making it something that is more globalized and it's working more across jurisdictions and across borders. Then I think we, we covered a lot of ground that was super exciting. I love how aligned we are on our missions as, as we see funds. Can you say a bit more about trust ventures? So what is, what are the kinds of companies that you invest in? What is your secrets? Yeah. Well, the, the secret sauce is really the founders, a guy named Sal Churi and Brian Talkman, who have very interesting stories. Brian Talkman became CEO of a modular construction company that all of a sudden faced literally do or die risk in terms of regulation. And it said, oh, if you're building modular buildings, there's a height limit. That's all of a sudden becomes, we can't build a certain number of units then. And it was a company called Casita. And he used that experience with, Sal Churi was at the time, a, a clinical professor of law at University of Chicago. That meant he was actually doing practical things, training students on practical, very practical things in running something called the innovation clinic. That was like this partnership between the business school and the law school. And these two individuals came together and said, wow, there's a problem in society. There are all sorts of startups that can't get to go because of regulatory barriers. And they founded trust ventures. Literally the first dollars were deployed in 2018 out of the first funds. And within four years, they're now in the third fund. So all the magic is with them, but Trust Ventures, my job at Trust Ventures is to help the fund identify what are the next wave of startups that face really big regulatory problems and how can we give them the right kind of guidance and support to navigate those problems, to create transformative value for customers all over the world. We're in the game of improving people's lives and trying to help companies that face roadblocks, cross over and jump over those roadblocks. We're now managing around 40 businesses. We've had some exits and acquisitions, which is great, but we are really generalist in terms of sector. We do everything from veterinary telemedicine to nutritional supplements, to biohacking devices for those who like to go to CrossFit. We've got energy innovators in the energy storage space. Obviously we mentioned Oaklow in the telemedicine and medical device space. We're invested in a company called Visibly that's making it really easy to get an online eye exam. We've got companies that are trying to disrupt the way in which customers can get essential medicines they need. We're doing things that are companies that are making healthcare cheaper for small business employees. And these are all in totally different sectors, but they all share a theme that there exists some law in the books or some regulatory threat that comes in the way of improving people's lives. And we want to disrupt not just a static industry, but, or, but also to disrupt a, a static set of regulation. Fantastic. Then anything else you would like to draw attention to when it comes to your work, when it comes to trust ventures, who are you looking for right now? who should contact you and how can they reach you? Yeah, absolutely. The best way to get in touch with us is to go to our website. It's trustventures.com and you can get a flavor of our portfolio companies. And really we're interested in phenomenal founders and founder teams, individuals who are high conviction uh, uh, entrepreneurs and who are really looking to change the world and really improve things. And ultimately we're looking for those people who kind of see the world differently. Because we think that if you're one of those visionaries, we want to be your 
We want to rest on your shoulders. We want to stand on the shoulders of giants like you and help you grow so that you can become the kind of giant visionary that you were meant to uh, become. So if you're someone who uh, kind of sees opportunities, sees moments for change, if you're a social entrepreneur and a and a market changer at heart, come call, come get in touch with Trust Ventures because we'd love to build the future with you. And if you do that, also check out infinitavc.com. <laughs> very similar focus, very similar idea, very similar thesis. Although but my focus is more using some of these alternative or special jurisdictions. Dan, it was so great to have you on the show. So great to hear notes and think about ways how we can help entrepreneurs overcome these regulatory bottlenecks. It was extremely insightful to have you on the show. And thank you so much for giving my listeners so much on the way. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.